So Lawrence, it's great to talk to you. Thank you very much. Yeah. And uh, this interview is for an issue, uh, the theme of which is awakening through the body. It's a topic that's of interest to me in a very personal level. Our mutual friend, Dorothy Walters, who recently passed, was someone I spoke with quite a bit over the last 10 or 12 years. Mm. Uh, I had met her some years before, but mm. the way that came about was for 20 years, uh, I lived in a spiritual community and that community came to an end about 10 years ago. During those 20 years, the tradition that I was predominantly involved with was the tradition of Advaita Vedanta, and particularly in the lineage of Ramana Maharshi and H.W.L. Punja. And then the practice that I was doing was largely a practice designed to bring one to the realization of, of who they really are as the awareness that is aware, the consciousness behind mm -hmm. all, and to recognize that deeply enough that it, it, it becomes something you can't doubt. And there's, you have no, no longer have any doubt of who you are and where this awareness that you are experiencing right. is coming from. Right. And that's what I did for 20 years. And we did enormous amounts of practice, like I've read in your books, I've had numerous experiences of different types. Generally speaking, in that tradition, spiritual experiences are seen as mostly as a potential distraction from the truth. So there's a big de-emphasis of experience. And I was a very good student, so I de-emphasized most of the experiences that I had. But of course, I continued to have them. So when that community came to an end, what was interesting to me was the first the first thing that sort of bubbled up as as a as a question was a kundalini experience i had had in 2001 and just to describe it briefly i was on a long meditation retreat and we were meditating from about i think we started at like four in the morning and we were on and off until nine or ten at night and about halfway through this two-month retreat, I woke up one night with this tremendous pain at the base of my spine. And I actually remember wondering, like, could you hurt yourself from sitting on a cushion? <laughs> you know, could, I have, could I have broken something? Because it, it hurt so badly. I ended up getting up out of bed and I was rubbing it and I was walking around and I didn't know how to get rid of the pain. And at some point, out of just frustration, I sat back down on the bed, and as soon as I sat down, there was this rush of white light that burst through the base of my spine, up through my head, you know, into the heavens, and it roared like, uh, like the sound of a fire hose. And my eyes were open, and I thought the light was outside of me because it was so blinding. So I closed my eyes, and the light was just as bright, so I realized it was inside. And I remember Kundalini was not a part of my path, particularly. And I remember actually voicing, holy shit, I think this is Kundalini. <laughs> but like, I, had, I didn't. I think that's I what Shankaracharya that. said when it happened to him. Is that true? <laughs> holy shit. And uh, I, uh, I, you know, I had heard of these things and I 
vaguely believed that they were true, but I, you know, having direct confirmation was a very different event. So for a while, I talked to my teacher about it after the retreat. Mm -hmm. You know, he was fascinated. We had numerous conversations. He had had a very similar Kundalini experience. But after a few days, he finally said to me, okay, enough, enough with this. Forget about it. You know, it happened. It's great. And mm -hmm. so I forgot about it. And for the next 10 years, I didn't really give it any much thought. When the community ended, I thought, well, what about that? I know I, I had just dismissed it, but I wonder. And that's when I called Dorothy Walters. Dorothy proceeded to ask me about my spiritual life since that time, which I had always seen as being the result of my engagement with my teacher. That's how I had had seen everything unfold. Mm -hmm. And she just recast it as, as the gradual unfolding of the Kundalini that had awakened. And I saw that that fit the facts just as well. And so over the last 10 years, I've become very involved in understanding those aspects of the path that I had not been paying any attention to and realizing that there are ways in which our body is involved in the process of awakening that it's not it's not it's not only a cognitive event yeah <laughs> you know it's not only a, an expansion of consciousness yep. and so i guess i would love to hear you speak about that first the fact that the that awakening is not there is a cognitive component for sure but it is not only a cognitive event uh, uh this is this is fabulous Yes. <laughs> yes, it's it's an entire being event. Well, anything from uh, our Cartesian viewpoint of who and what we are and how that influences our uh, sort of paradigm, our conditioned understanding uh, of who we are in the sense that uh, that's often people experience that, you know, uh, I'm me, you know, walking around somewhere up here, dragging a body along or the body's dragging me along. But um, the integration of these things uh, has been lost a long time ago. So Kundalini and, and Kundalini as the power of consciousness. Uh, so I, I think it's important to start with kind of a definition. Mm. Kundalini is the power of the infinite to know itself both as the infinite and as the finite. So it's, it's that power of consciousness, and it's not unique to the yoga tradition. If the name is unique, it's Kundalini, it's a Sanskrit name, it has certain symbolic qualities to it, etc. But we're talking about, I think, in uh, at least that, the way I approach it on a more universal level is, um, you know, the, the quest for knowing the truth of who we are. Uh, and knowing that fully, completely, and living that moment by moment. Well, that's the, this is the innate power that allows that to unfold. And it impacts be, because it has no boundaries. It doesn't, it's a mind-born concept that there's a body and a mind. Um, to Shakti, this power of consciousness, no, no, no. <laughs> there is no separation. Um, that was already an artifice of thinking. And that's one of the things that needs to get dissolved. Um, that's why I mentioned before uh, when you said about the full body involvement in these experiences. And Shankaracharya, who was 
you know, kind of a, a root guru in Vedanta. And um, he very famously later, even when he was considered an enlightened sage and, you know, sort of really espoused um, the self-inquiry, the knowing the truth of who you are, separate from, you know, property, nature, matter, anything like that. Um, he became, uh, well, had a, a spontaneous awakening of Kundalini and it totally changed his perspective. And so in his famous book, the Sundari Lahari, it's a hymn to Kundalini. It's a hymn that says everything, all enlightenment, all creativity, all insight, everything is the unfolding of this power. So the, 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 the paradigm of Kundalini uh, is all embracing. And it was really seen as the awakening of that to be the esoteric goal of the classic forms of yoga, Hatha Yoga, Mantra Yoga, Laya Yoga, Raja Yoga, Ayana Yoga, that these would ultimately get to that place where this power of consciousness is then awakened and it radically transforms then the direction of sadhana, the direction of spiritual practice. Because as you know, you know, we get up, uh, you know, for years and years, we get up in the morning and, you know, okay, we have a routine. The routine is our set of practices. Um, that routine may have been given to us by a guru. So there's a certain surrender. I'm surrendering to the practice that was given to me by my master. And so that's a good thing for retraining the ego into surrender and obedience, discipline, following. Um, but there's also a component that's always saying, I'm doing this. I'm doing this at this time. I'm doing this at that time. Oh, I didn't do that. I feel bad, I'm bad but I'll do twice as much later. <laughs> but there's, a, there's a lot of I, 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 me, 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 mine, mine, mine. Um, and in many ways, the ego is the guru that you're really following. Um, that's a problem. Uh, and it, it becomes especially highlighted when a, awakening of this power of consciousness that's innate to us can freak people out because they thought the only thing at home was their ego mind telling them what to do. Now there are spontaneous things happening. Now you're being flooded with light and pain is coming up. Wait a minute, I didn't do that. I didn't sign up for that maybe. Um, so the, the innate power that also is spontaneous and wisdom driven, wisdom, the wisdom of the infinite for working through, oh, what are the blocks in this body? that restrain it, that constraint is then impeding its knowing and participating in the, the unfolding of the divine in the moment, which is its essential nature, which is the essential nature of the mind. And so this power is going to go through a, a purificatory set of processes, not dictated by the mind. In, in fact, often in total conflict in the mind. <laughs> Um, sometimes even in conflict with a tradition, because I get contacted by yogis, um, Zen monks who have had sudden awakenings while they're, you know, practicing in a Zendo, uh, traditional Zendo in Japan, and their master's going, this is horrible. We have to like literally practically beat it out of you to make it stop, uh, because there's so little understanding that this enlightened state is a full body, all bodies, physical body, subtle body, causal body, 
supercausal body. So this is a paradigm that says, oh, you don't just have a physical body and understand that that continuum uh, from the gross nature of physical matter to the most subtle refined levels of consciousness is a spectrum of the contraction of consciousness taking form. At base, it's all consciousness. And you know this. This is, this is the energy of consciousness that makes up everything. All of the universe is that. So this full body awakening is really, that's what the power says. No, everything participates. Nothing is left out. Uh, it's only the mind that does either or. The mind is, is really comfortable with either or, compare and contrast. It spends a lot of time doing that uh, and gets caught in that. And Shakti, Kundalini, power of the infinite, Holy Spirit, and then we can call it all different names, Bodhicitta, um, is saying, no, all those boundaries, gone. All those concepts, gone. Um, the full participation of who we are in what all is, oh, that includes everything. Uh, there's so many things that you, that you just said that I wanted to speak about. I guess in my own path, I had many experiences of what in, in your book, The Soul's Journey, you've referred to as uh, the eternal witness and what I sometimes would refer to as cosmic consciousness. And those are the experiences I gave the most significance to. They were the most aligned with the path that I was on. And, and I loved what you just said about the routine and the practice and the devotion to the teacher, all of which I experienced and the benefits of that there are benefits of discipline. And for me, I realized at some point that those benefits come to an end because at some point you have to find your own way. And there is no, there's no way to be led past a certain point. And so now, uh, as I said to you, I started to get interested in Kundalini and, and even more recently, because I was on a Yana yoga path. So it's the path of self-knowledge, it's the path of, of inquiry. I did, do, I did practice Hatha Yoga for most of those years, but not, interestingly enough, not really as a spiritual practice. I practiced it as a physical discipline, mainly. What I've gotten fascinated by over the last few years is the path of Raja Yoga, because what I, I am experiencing a flip in a way, uh, and similar to what you described, which is, I always thought the more physical bodily practices, and I think it is true, are designed to help you awaken to the causal truth of the eternal witness. But it's also, those practices are also the way that you open the channel for the divine to flow through you into life. And that's what I've become more invested in over the last you know few years that it's one thing to know who you are and and to have no doubt about it and that is clearly profound uh, but there's another thing to to have the living flow of kundalini of shakti infusing your life in an ongoing way yeah because too often um knowing who we are our sense of knowing is often, you know, cognitively biased. It's shifted towards, you know, that's a cognitive experience. And, and certainly when we're doing, you know, self-inquiry and neti, 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 neti to anything that arises, 
it's peeling away everything. So you, you end up in this pure space of awareness. What was often uh, limited about that awareness, however, was that it tends to be still this sort of abstracted experience. And what was really important, both from the, the Kundalini tradition, but also, you know, Buddha talked about it, um, that we have, to ha we have to have an understanding of, well, wait a minute, what is that, that full unfolding of consciousness that I'm tapping into this awareness quality of, but that doesn't mean I've tapped into the entire spectrum of what that innate consciousness has as qualities that the mind splits up in the yoga tradition it's then expressed as satchitananda, uh, eternal being, um, the pure consciousness, ah, ananda, rapturous, loving awareness. That is so often left out of people's experience. They get into the awareness, you know, and there's a, there's a, there's a freedom because we're so often bound by thoughts and concepts and experiences and past and future anticipation, all that stuff. So. We get rid of that, we come into the moment, there's this, ah, there's this open space. Where's the rapture? Where's the loving embrace of all that is as yourself? Because this is what the, the mystics and the saints are also talking about. The mind has, takes comfort in the um, sort of cognitive space because it's so similar to mind as it is in its limited sense. So it resonates that, it feels comfortable in that. You overwhelm it with love, with devotion, with the, the rapturous experience of all there is, is, is the divine, I'm the divine, that's all I see. Um, so when Buddha talked about the four immeasurables, you know, the boundless loving compassion, the boundless wisdom, uh, the unshakable equanimity, and the boundless rapturous ecstatic experience. So if we're segregated and saying, okay, I can trust the cognitive component because that doesn't rattle my nervous system too much. Now, but this rapturous feeling, loving, merging, ecstasy uh, that just you know, brings up the classic experiences of you know, heripolation and vibrations going through the body and you know, scintillating energy, that suddenly is a very different thing for the ordinary mind to be dealing with. And, and in that way, I get why so many traditions have sort of applied the medicine of don't get too involved in that. Um, because it really can be an overwhelming distraction at the wrong time on a path. Um, but to you know, negate it or denigrate it in any way, well, that's turning against consciousness itself. So let me pick up on that because that's, that's very powerful to me. Uh, because I've, I was reflecting as you were speaking on the fact that in the experience, at times having expanded consciousness to the size of the universe and recognizing that I am that and there is nothing else, there, there's an experience of pure ecstasy in that realization. And so it feels like in the experience itself, all are present. And, that, and I'm just seeing how after in my spiritual work as Jeff, there was this conscious putting aside 
of certain elements of that experience. And I can see that it was valuable to me at the time, I think. It helped keep me focused in the direction of, of greater depth. But now it feels like it's, it feels necessary to my path, return to those places that were set aside and explore them because recently I've gotten interested in, uh, I've been introduced to yoga nidra, which is a practice I had known about, but never spent much time in. And uh, I'm very fascinated by everything that you're saying, because in that tradition, there's the idea, I'm sure you know of a sankalpa, which is a very deep mm -hmm. intention. And the deep intention I've been working with is I am alive awake and embodied in all dimensions of my being. And that's what I, I felt like my path was very, as you said, cognitively leaning. It involved uh, tremendous awakenings of consciousness. And there are these other bodies, the subtle body, the energetic body, the astral body, the causal body. There are other dimensions of being that I am now wanting to explore. And when I look back at my path, I realize they were always all part of the path. You know, you can't really be only consciousness because that, as you said, that the whole idea that consciousness is separate from anything else is just an idea anyway. But you can, holding that idea does affect what you, it does filter what you yeah. experience. And yeah. so... I'm sort of rediscovering my whole path in a way, seeing that there was a lot more going on than I was allowing myself to see at the time. Yeah. I mean, I, it, it's, it's like, okay, a, a path has certain boundaries. And, and with the intent, it's going to get you to, you know, closer to where you're trying to get to, this, this exquisite state of knowing. Mm. Uh, and those boundaries both contain energy, focus energy, direct energy. But it doesn't mean what's just the other side of that boundary is necessarily bad or doesn't exist or shouldn't exist. It's just that for the intention in that moment, keeping it tight and focused and directed is, is a critical part of the path. Then often we have to go like Shankaracharya happened spontaneously was, oh, there's nothing left out. This is all encompassing. Um, this is this includes the full body experience of rapture's loving ecstatic um, merger um, that you, you can get down to the down to feeling like um, like the threads of energy that make up the cosmos that mm -hmm. make up our body that make up the atoms of our body they too are scintillating with rapturous ecstasy that this is their nature that we can know that and that the body, the body yearns to participate in its level. It's not just the mind longs to know and have its way of experiencing. Oh my God, my body longs to know that too. You know, everything, everything is longing to know that, to swim in that, to be immersed in that knowing. I love what you're saying about how the body longs for that too. Over the past, I don't know, five, six years ago, I got very involved in an indigenous tradition of Lomi Lomi massage. What she talked a lot about was listening to the wisdom of the body and enacting that massage. You are 
I, I remember coming to her going, well, I, I've never studied anatomy. I've never studied massage. I'm probably going to be at a disadvantage. She said, well, in some ways you'll be in an advantage because we don't want your mind to massage someone. We want your body to do it. So you let your body communicate with the body of the other. And then you'll find a way to follow the wisdom of the body. And I think in your teaching, one of the things I hear is learning how to follow the wisdom of the body in the process of awakening. And it dovetails with, you know, these cognitive practices. Well, a lot of them are aimed at uh, freeing us from the conditioned mind, a mind that's been conditioned by trauma, by past life events, by all kinds of things. So if we want to listen to the wisdom of the body, we, who's listening and how clear are they? How clear is that consciousness to be able to tune into that? Because that's where all the work you've done on those other levels of cognitive purification and clarity, um, that then is you're bringing that clarified awareness to listening to the body. And that's so important. I mean, they can go together, but when we've done some of these practices that help clear the way so that the overlays that are so automatic for the conditioned mind have already been eased out of the way, um, then we can really be present with the body, listen to the body uh, without just then bringing another conceptual framework, um, uh, uh, the conditioning of past traumas, all kinds of things that come in through that. Mm. That's beautiful because it, part of that work for me was because I am a very cognitive person mm -hmm. by nature, you know, I, I always have been. And I remember working in that tradition, I was often given the feedback that I am, I'm conceptualizing the body, that in the body, arms don't exist as, right. as a concept, you know, and, and I, I, I feel to some extent, I learned how to uh, deconceptualize my physical experience so that I was able to enter a place where I was responding to sensation. And that was very different than any level of conceptualization. And I agree. I, I feel like it was valuable for me to set aside the Kundalini experience when it happened. I think I could have got on a whole thing. I could have gone crazy with that the time. But as you said, who would have been the one going crazy with it? And I feel like now, many years later, after, after having done much more practice, I'm in a better place. I have a better vantage point to, to explore these things. So how do you recommend, because I know you teach meditation, and you teach, I don't know, I guess you teach Kundalini Awakening. And how do you recommend people approach awakening? If someone's coming to you and they're just passionately interested, what do, what do you see as the, as the most efficient or effective way to uh, follow a path? Well, you know, one of the hallmarks of Kundalini and Kundalini awakening was that it unfolds the yoga that is specific for the individual. So for instance, Hatha Yoga as was developed out of Kundalini Yoga because Hatha Yoga and all the postures and practices that are, make it up are 
uh, were first observed as the spontaneous movements, kriyas, of people going through this awakening process. Then it got systematized because it found like, okay, if you do these exercises, you can then wind up awakening that so it's happening spontaneously. But it was the spontaneous nature of kundalini because the, there are, it said that there are 84,000 asanas. And it said that of those 84,084 are particularly central. But your body and your subtle body, well, it may only need four of those or seven, or it might need three now and six, six months from now, seven years from now. What's the energy of consciousness that has the wisdom to prescribe the right ones at the right time and unfold that spontaneously? That was Kundalini. Right? So understanding that we have this innate wisdom power um, of transformation then we're really talking about what are the practices that help us become attuned to what is already fully present within you. And Kundalini on one level is already awake. One aspect of Kundalini, that's what maintains the ordinary body, mind, all processes of, of being a living uh, human being, being anything that's alive actually. Um, it's this aspect of Kundalini for knowing the infinite as ourself that is said to metaphorically awaken and go through this process. So many of the initial practices, Hatha Yoga was an initial practice aimed at helping to steady, clarify the body, um, help empower the body to be able to participate. If we're rigid and stuck and bound up in our musculature, um, then where's the latitude to be in the flow, the dance of the divine? Uh, we're all uptight. So, you know, the Kriyas to begin with often are very loosening people up. Um, Hatha Yoga helps to do that on a conscious level. But it's the attunement to what's already present to become uh, more refined. So it's, uh, when I'm teaching, I'm making use of the same kinds of practices, um, whether it's breath awareness and helping to steady the mind. Most people's minds are so unsteady, they need to do a lot of steadying uh, in order to have a platform from which to be able to observe what's unfolding. Uh, so those are all preliminary kinds of practices, but one of the key ones in the, the Kundalini traditions has been empowered mantra, uh, because it's a whole other sort of science of how, um, how this wisdom consciousness uh, is encoded in sound form, in the vibration, uh, the throb of energy, the throb of Shakti, this power of consciousness that creates mantra. That mantra is already arising within you. The ancient sages didn't make up mantras. They heard the mantras. It was one of the principal reasons why it was so important because most of our language is mind born. So we follow our thoughts. They just keep us circling around in the maze of the mind. Ah, but here comes a sound form arising from the infinite, becoming grosser as it arises, and then can be uttered as Om, or Om Namah Shivaya, or Om Halima, right? But that wasn't mind-born. That was born of your own essential nature. That's what gave rise to that. Mantras are the the vehicles that our infinite self sort of projects into this domain of duality so that we can take hold of it and go to where the mantra arose from. 
So mantra is a, is a very important component of the practices I offer that have been a, important uh, aspects of the lineages that have been a part of both Tibetan and, and yogic as a way of conveying that, of being able to then become immersed in that, that it's beyond the mind. Uh, and how are we tuning into that? Because if you tell the mind, go beyond yourself, it goes, yeah, how do I jump over my shadow? Uh, but if you start listening to this sound and just become more and more absorbed in it, absorbed with the awareness of I am that mantra. The mantra is who I am. I'm a throb of the infinite. And then those thoughts and concepts begin to dissolve. And you begin to be able to experience it. And you'll, you can feel it as energies running through the body. Um, you can feel it as um, insights and awarenesses opening you know, on a consciousness level. All of that arising from the Shakti of Mantra. Because the Shakti of Mantra, oh, that's awakened Kundalini. Kundalini is the source of all mantra. So that's how it was recognized that she's the one who gave birth to all the sound forms of mantra. I feel very, I feel a lot of kindred spirit with you in a lot of ways, in many different ways. And one of those is, I think we've both devoted our lives to spirit. And from my point of view, and I imagine from your point of view, I don't see anything else that's that's really worth <laughs> worth giving my energy to. I don't have a life besides my my spiritual work and my my own practice and my teaching. I mean, I don't I don't know what else I would do. And I don't know. It seems to me, and I'd be curious because because you know we've both been involved in this for a long time. It seems to me that in some ways spiritual pursuit is more popular now than it ever has been. And at the same time, the pursuit of something we might call enlightenment has fallen out of favor. And, you know, people are interested in a lot of aspects of spirituality, but that, to, what to me feels like the most exciting part, which is the, the connection to the source of existence and the opening of one's being to becoming a living vessel for that. In the 80s, when I first started to get involved, I felt like that was, people were really into that. <laughs> that was, that was kind of, a, that was trending at the time. So what do you think about that? Is there a way to re-inspire, reinvigorate the idea of, of that kind of enlightenment, that kind of profound realization in the, in the modern world, in today's world? Yeah, I think it's a great, uh, it's a great question you bring up. And because it, it helps to highlight what happens uh, in, in sadhana practice when the ego mind co-ops the practice and looks at the benefits it's gaining as its possessions. And they are there to then serve the ego mind's agenda. And in many ways, I think that's what's the phase we're in. It's become, it's become broader in terms of people's engagement, uh, but people, you know, are doing mindfulness meditation uh, for peak performance. Uh, people are doing meditative practices and teaching it in the military so you can be a better sniper. Um, these are not the intent of these practices, all right? This is the, you know, the sort of the far end of the 
spectrum of how practice can be co-opted for ego power needs. But it's still, even on a lesser level, it's still that sense of, I'm doing this, I'm doing that. What are the benefits for me? How are they going to grow? Oh, they make me feel better. Um, they stabilize my moods and emotions. Um, I can be more focused. I can do better work for longer periods of time. Um, I can get absorbed in my creativity. But it's, it's the practices in service of the ego mind's agenda and that total selflessness, uh, the abandonment of individuality that freaks the hell out of the ego, <laughs> let's face it. Um, that's not easily you know, talked about, integrated, or seen as, why would I want to do that? I've had people say, why would I want to do that? No, I, I like that I can feel better. I can, I sleep better. I do all these things, but it's me having more comfort in this narrow domain that is the ego mind's dominion. And so it's making use of practices that, oh, they go so far beyond that. Um, and I trust that someday somebody's going to, you know, more and more engage in that. I, I love this conversation because I see this similarly that, I often say people meditate usually for two reasons. One is for some variation of stress reduction and the other is for awakening. And by and most people are in the stress reduction camp. Now, the beautiful thing about awakening is it, it requires stress reduction. You know, you, you can't awaken from tension. Actually, uh, you can. You can, okay, tell me that. Well, Shakti knows no bounds. Mm. Um, I've seen people waken in the midst of the most horrific traumas. Yes. Firemen, you know, in New York City who, re, who were, you know, first responders who had awakening experiences in the midst of that. So, yeah, Shakti can wake us up anytime. Again, awakening is not uh, an ego function. So, so it also introduces that uh, our consciousness is in an evolutionary process across lifetimes. Mm -hmm. Awakening happens at a kind of place in that process when we're right. We've explored what it is to be ignorant and caught and uh, pursuing the roads of all kinds of desires and identifications until we are done with that play. Mm -hmm. uh, so being ripe for awakening is really important. It's why not everybody is, wants to awaken. Not everybody is ripe for awakening. I saw countless people come to even Muktananda, who was a great guru. I mean, he had, he had a lot of power. A lot of people were awakened. But there were people that was just like, oh, that was nice. And off they went. Mm. They were, there just wasn't their life. There wasn't anything wrong. There wasn't like everybody incarnated to awaken. We incarnate to engage in a process that eventually will lead to that. But in any given lifetime, Maybe not. No, that's really good because this is actually something I've recently had an awakening myself to, mm. which is the reality of the soul and the, the multi-lifetime journey. Of course, I had always heard that and I right. knew it. It's de-emphasized again in, in more Advaita Vedanta non-dual. My teacher, for instance, said the only lifetime that matters is the one you're living. You know, right. that was right. The only moment that matters is the one you're living. Is, is right, is this one. So it's the only one that actually exists. And there's wisdom in that, and I benefited a great deal from that. But I'm realizing now, and how this has helped me is, is exactly what you're saying. We're all 
on a, on a very big journey through countless lifetimes. And there is no one path for everyone in incarnate form. The right path for you is the path that's meeting the needs of your soul at this moment. Right. And no one can ultimately tell you what that is. You can learn to listen for that wisdom from your own soul. But it's really helped me relax around previous ideas I had about the right way versus the wrong way. And, and also for myself to be able to say, you know, I need to listen to what my journey is requiring right now, what my soul's journey wants, to hearken back to the name of your book, because that's going to be unique to this particular moment in some grand journey of awakening. Mm-hmm. And I can gain access to, to that wisdom. And I think that's fundamentally what you teach from, from what I've learned. Fundamentally, what you teach is how to open to your own innate wisdom and be able to follow that effectively. And I think in the end, that's what, that's what the path boils down to. At some point, you've done all the practices, you've gained the disciplines, you've had the experiences, and the only thing left to do is to listen as deeply as you can to the wisdom of your own soul, uh, which comes in cognitive forms, but it also comes in energetic forms, and it comes, in, in, it comes through the body. And yeah, yeah, the body uh, is an energy manifestation. Absolutely. So I'm, I'm just, I'm loving what you're saying, and it's dovetailing with things that I'm very much involved with at the moment that are, that is changing how I think and how I teach. And it's why that awakening then, if we understand awakening Kundalini is, oh, this is, this is a process. Yes, it can be dramatic and spontaneous. It can be gradual and spontaneous. There's different forms it's going to take. But it's that power of, of, you know, sort of classically, kundalini is the power of revelation and transformation. So it reveals, oh, what does it reveal? The infinitude is our own being that encompasses everything, all beings, all bodies, nothing left out. And uh, the transformation is the transformation of the this vehicle, this mind and body. So we can fully participate in that. Not to have a concept and then the body's going, yeah, but I'm in this kind of pain and this is uncomfortable and this is that. No, what embraces all of that, including the pain? I can tell you, I have this, this body vehicle has had its uh, bangs and dings and hospitalized numerous times and dozens of surgeries. And I can tell you, I've been in ecstasy in the midst of dying. I've been in ecstasy in the midst of the most excruciating pain. And see, these are simultaneously present. There is no either or. When we dial into and are drawn, because it's not something I can do as an ego mind, consciousness draws us in and says, no, I embrace it all. I am fully present in all of it, all of it, nothing left out. Nashivam vidyatesh kwashet. There's nothing that is not the consciousness of Shiva or in, in the Kabbalah, Ein Od Milvado. There is nothing that is not God. That is beautiful, Lawrence. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use that as our opportunity to, to bring this beautiful conversation to a close. Although it's not the end of our conversation, I hope, because I, hope not. I have many more things I, I would love to discuss with you. And you teach online 
you, you lead meditations uh, every other week by Zoom. Is that still yeah. the case? Yeah. So through, you know, Anamkara meditation, Anamkara is an ancient Celtic term, means friend of the soul. Um, there was an organization I started uh, right after 9-11 because I was getting so many calls living in the New York area to do meditative workshops for people so stressed out. So that gave birth to that. And um, now we do the first and third Thursdays of the month. We're off for, October, uh, for August, but, and then also do various courses and study group kinds of things or discussion groups. Uh, and that's all on the Anamkara website and the Soul's Journey website. Lawrence, thank you so much. It's been a delight to talk to you. So with that, I'm just very appreciative. Thank you so yeah, much. Yeah, me too. I look forward to uh, future conversations. Yes, absolutely. Thank you, Lawrence. All right, take care, Jeff. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.